Last week, we heard Pastor Ray share about the special advantages or privileges that the Jewish people had before God as his original chosen people. I know in today's cultural climate, the conversation about privilege is very heated and sensitive. For those of you watching today who are not up to speed on this whole topic of privilege, I will do my best to catch you up. The concept of social privilege has technically existed since the human race has existed, as all people are born with unique advantages and disadvantages depending on their context. However, the theory of social privilege seems to have been popularized in the early 1900s by an American historian and sociologist named W.E.B. Du Bois, and a greater emphasis focusing on white privilege and male privilege brought to the forefront of the public and mainstream conversations in the late 1980s by Peggy McIntosh, a woman studies scholar at Wellesley College. It's a really important conversation that has been around long before recent social media trends. It doesn't take long to look at our society and around the world and realize that the concept of social privilege is very real and needs to be recognized. I'm sure many of you watching today have experienced situations where you were either discriminated against or placed ahead of others based on things you have no control over. It's a troubling reality to think about and an infuriating thing to experience. We long for a day where people will not be favored or devalued based on the things that they cannot control, such as skin color, gender, nationality, ethnicity, age, physical stature, sexual orientation, and the list goes on. These are things that we are born into, and they speak nothing of a human being's inherent value. I ask you, Willingdon Church, and all of our guests tuning in, if you ever come across a situation where you see someone being discriminated against or someone being elevated above others based on social privilege, we need to stand up for those being oppressed and call it out. But we can't stop there. As we are transformed by the love of God, as we are empowered by the spirit of God, we begin to see the world differently and respond to corruption and injustices differently. We don't just do different things though, we become different people. We go beyond simply retweeting or reposting social justice initiatives on social media and we begin to open ourselves up to God working through us to the point of inconveniencing and sacrificing ourselves so that others may be set free from an injustice. As followers of Jesus, we can't be passive bystanders as the corrupt systems of this world try to play God and determine people's value based on things like social privilege. Followers of Jesus know that each person is equally valuable in God's eyes. The passage we read from today can sound pretty bleak and discouraging at first glance, all people being unrighteous before God. But in light of the current conversations around privilege and the deep pain that many experience due to being judged unfairly, I believe we can come to see that there's actually tremendous hope within it. Romans 3 verses 9 to 20 speaks to the concept of privilege as it pertains to our relationship with God, who's the creator of every person. So let's read in verse 9 again. The apostle Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? 
Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Okay, we're going to stop there. If you remember from last week, Paul was just talking about the advantages that the Jewish people had with God. And now he flips the script and concludes with the statement that Jewish people have no advantage before God. Why the sudden change? In the sermon from last week, Paul was talking about the Jewish people having advantages over the rest of the world in the sense that they were the people who God chose to give his fullest revelation to and adopt as his own people group before Jesus came and established the new covenant between God and humanity. The Jews had access to God's written words or laws and knew God's heart far better than any other people group until Jesus came. Paul was acknowledging that there were special privileges to being a Jew in that sense. However, that privilege proved to not be as helpful as they would have hoped. Just because the Jews knew God's laws and knew his heart more fully than other people groups, it didn't mean that they followed God's laws as they were meant to. Their special privilege of being aware of God's explicit commands did nothing to make them more holy or favorable in God's eyes as they continued to violate God's commands and chose to decide what was right for themselves. The privilege that the Jewish people were born into failed to restore them into a right relationship with God and live the way that he intended for them to live. Then comes Jesus. God became human, namely Jesus of Nazareth, and he made a whole new way for all people to be restored in relationship with God. To be completely forgiven for all the ways that we disobey God's laws and hurt other people. Jewish people and non-Jewish people alike are all on the same level ground before God. Without Jesus, all of us are equally separated from relationship with God due to the ways that we violate God's designs for how we were meant to live. Regardless of the privilege that you have or don't have in this world, it does nothing to make you more or less valuable in God's eyes. God's value systems are different than the value systems of this world. Okay, now let me be clear. I'm not saying that to diminish the importance of the conversation about social privilege today. Showing favoritism is actually something God hates. He desires that all people be loved and treated equally as we are all made in God's image. So in a sense, for us to fight against social privilege is part of following God's laws and living the way that he's designed for us. In essence, followers of Jesus should be at the forefront of conversations about social privilege and actively working to bring reform to corrupt systems and institutions that perpetuate it. What this text is telling us, though, is that no one's privilege here on earth affects or changes their status in God's eyes. We don't ultimately look to whether we are privileged in society to tell us what we're worth. Our greatest need in life is that we be reconciled to God, to be in relationship with him and let him be the one who tells us what we're worth. God wants our hearts. He wants our entire lives, whether socially privileged or not, to be fully submitted to him. He wants us all to live the way that he designed for things to be. Now here's the problem. When we read the Bible, 
we see that there are so many things it tells us about how God wants us to live, and we fail in them all the time. It doesn't take long to discover that we are unable to fully live the way God made us to. Now, you might be wondering at this point, why has God made it impossible for us to live the way that we're meant to? Great question. It's this thing that Paul talks about here at the end of verse nine called the power of sin that we are all under. Some of you might be wondering even like, what is sin? Okay, well, let me explain. One of the most helpful ways that I've come to understand sin is by learning the Greek word that it comes from. The New Testament in the Bible was originally written in Greek and the Greek word hamartia is where we often get our English word sin from. Hamartia, that Greek word, means to miss the mark. So picture this with me. A bullseye target and living God's ways is at the center of the target. Every time we don't live God's ways, we miss the target. When we don't live the way God tells us to, we sin. When we go against God's created design for life, we cause damage to others, to ourselves, and to our relationship with God. Now, when Paul says we are under the power of sin, it shows that sin isn't only related to our personal thoughts, decisions, and actions, but sin is also a cosmic force that exists in the world. It's something that impacts all of life. Everything from the decay and destruction of nature to the evil temptations and forces that operate all throughout the world, from the international level, corruption in governments, armies, multinational corporations, to our very own neighborhoods. Not to mention our own personal struggles with our desires that go against God. Paul speaks to this later in the same letter to Romans when he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Sin is a powerful force at work in the world. And without Jesus, we are all imprisoned by sin and separated from God. You might be wondering where sin came from. If you go back and listen to a message that I gave on Genesis chapter three, a few weeks before Easter, it walks through the part of the story where the original humans that God created chose to disobey God's commands, which resulted in the power of sin being brought into the world. Paul is saying that every single human being, both Jews and non-Jews, are all under the power of sin. Sadly, no one is exempt from it. There's no special privilege when it comes to sin. Paul illustrates this emphatically in the following verses with a string of statements from the Old Testament. So Romans chapter three, verses 10 to 18 says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes." 
Not a very encouraging way of describing humanity, hey? As much as I may be personally offended by this, if I'm honest with myself, I can see how true these statements are, not only for me, but for the tremendous evil that we see and hear about every day all around the world. All people are under the power of sin, and it is ugly. The amount of people that I've heard, both Christians and non-Christians, tell me that they are losing hope in the world and can't believe how messed up things are is a sobering reminder that the power of sin is alive and well, and we all desperately need Jesus to set us free from it. The statement that Paul concludes this list with is taken from Psalm 36, and I think it aptly summarizes the heart behind our evil ways. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oof. Did that just hit you the way it hit me? Because when I read that, I'm reminded of my past before I encountered God's presence for the first time. There was no fear of God in my life. There were so many times that I mistreated other people before I met Jesus, and I didn't care too much about how they felt. I lived a promiscuous lifestyle, which was emotionally damaging to myself and others. I lied to my friends to get what I wanted. I even threatened to fight other guys when they did stuff I didn't like. I lied to my parents about my drug use and my party habits, and the list goes on. And during that whole time, I didn't really care how much I hurt others. I cared more about whether I got what I wanted and whether or not I got caught doing the things that I wasn't supposed to do. Okay, to all of you watching this right now who personally feel stuck in the type of lifestyles that I used to live, or whether your close friend or child or grandchild is stuck in these patterns, I just want to encourage you today that there is hope. There is a beautiful future when we choose to follow Jesus. He will transform us and put us on the path that leads to eternal life. The best thing you can do for the person you love who's living a life of sin is to be unflinching, unblinking in your love and acceptance when they share with you the harmful things that they've done. No matter how bad you might think it is, there's nothing that's so bad that God can't forgive it. Remember earlier from Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. So be patient, have open and honest conversations and keep your focus on the love and forgiveness that we all receive from Jesus. And let's be honest, sin isn't just in my past. I'm also reminded of my present. I still mistreat people in different ways. I still do things that I know I shouldn't and sometimes use people to get what I want. The power of sin is still alive and well in me and around me. A key difference though is that now I have an underlying fear of God that's present with me throughout my life. When I bend the truth to try and make me look better, I know God is there and it displeases him. And he kindly invites me to confess my lies and to tell the whole truth. I still have unhealthy sexual desires towards women. And when I give in to them in different ways, God kindly invites me to confess these things and reminds me how he's created me to honor women, not objectify them. I have racist thoughts and assumptions and judgments cross my mind. When I catch myself thinking or even believing them, I'm aware that God is with me. 
He kindly reminds me that every person is beautiful and made in his image. And he's the loving creator of all the people that I've devalued in my thoughts. So what's the difference between my past and my present? Through encountering God about 10 years ago, I have begun growing to understand a healthy fear of God. He is the creator of all people, of all things. And when I live in a way that causes damage, disrespect, dishonor, or destruction to anything or anyone created, myself included, I'm coming against its creator. God is gracious, kind, forgiving, and infinitely compassionate, but he's also dangerous, just, and powerful, and he loves his creation. He will make sure that every evil thing done against his creation, especially against we humans who've been made in God's image, will be properly punished. So how do we know what things are sinful? God has given us all a conscience, which is a great starting point. If you desire or do things that violate your conscience, it's a good indicator that you could be sinning. More explicitly though, We know what sin is because God has revealed it to us through his laws and commands in the Bible. Beyond that, God's also given us his Holy Spirit who lives within us once we choose to follow Jesus and his spirit convicts us of the sin in our lives. As I mentioned earlier, the Jews were the original recipients of God's laws and commands. They knew what God wanted from them. God revealed to them how he created us and how he wants us to live. Even though they knew God's laws, it wasn't enough for them to start living obediently to God. They still kept breaking his laws and damaging their relationship with him. They thought having the law would be their solution to their separation from God, but simply having the law and trying to follow it on their own strength was not enough. So what was the purpose then of the law if it couldn't actually make them live the way God wanted for them? Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter three, verse 19 to 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In this closing statement, Paul makes two key points. The first point is that the law only applies to those under the law. Therefore, if someone does not know the law of God or is not chosen to worship the one true God, then they are not under the law. Their life will be judged based on what they know, not on how they follow God's laws. The Bible doesn't say exactly how God will judge people, though, who are not under the law, but it does say that God is love, God is just, and that all people have given into sin. Therefore, God will judge people without the law in the ways that he knows are best. Again, there is no special privilege before God. Paul uses some potent imagery here too. He says that every person will be held accountable to God, both those under the law, being the Jews, God's people, and non-Jews, so that every mouth may be silenced. Okay, imagine this with me. When we all die, we will stand before God and see his unadulterated beauty, purity, glory, and love shining in full force. As we gaze upon the amazing creator of all things in existence, God says, 
What business do you have entering my kingdom and living with me forever? What will you say? What can we say? All of our lives have countless moments where we directly disobeyed God, disrespected his creation by ignoring the needs of the marginalized in society, failing to care for the widow and the orphan and the very planet that we live on. So when we gaze at the beauty and the glory of the one true God, finally seeing him as he is, and we long to be with him, we realize we actually have no business being with him. We have all chosen to live in a way that has ultimately rejected God from our lives and implicitly said, I don't want you. Every mouth is silenced. We chose to disobey God's laws. We have no answer for him. The second point is that the law was not given to be perfectly followed so that we can make ourselves in right relationship with God. God will, t- will not tell anyone that they are welcome in his kingdom because they did all the right things. It's impossible. Paul reveals here that the purpose of the law was to make us aware of the fact that we are sinful and that we need outside help to free us from the power of sin in our lives. Again, Paul brings up the fact that the Jews, despite all of their advantage, have no true advantage when it comes to God forgiving us of our sin and accepting us into his kingdom. So when we think of the privilege conversation in our day and age, one of the first thoughts that comes to mind, I know for many of us, is white male privilege. I'm doing my best to acknowledge the great privileges I've had in my life and realize I have so much to learn about the challenges and the plights of many people around the world who were not born with the same favorable circumstances that I've had. None of us have any control over being born into these things, but we do have control in working together to call out social privilege and challenge the systems that have been corrupted by it. There's also some similarities here between the social privilege today and the Jews that Paul is addressing in this text and how they thought about their standing before God. They saw themselves as the privileged, chosen people of God. In their minds, simply being born a Jew and following the customs of the Jewish community made them accepted by God. They looked down on all the other people groups because they did not follow God's laws the ways that the Jews did. They thought they were declared righteous by God on the basis of the works they did to obey the law. In their minds, they were accepted and others rejected by God. Talk about privilege. But Paul is challenging this perspective on privilege in his own Jewish community. He pushes back against how they viewed their standing before God and gives them the shocking truth that even though they were privileged by being born into an awareness of God's law, there's actually no special privilege concerning their need for the exact same forgiveness from God, the same forgiveness that every human being needs. We can see in this passage for today that every single person has broken God's laws, violated his commands, and chose to reject his design for how we ought to live. When anyone looks at God's laws, it's immediately obvious that we don't live up to them. As we're faced with this sobering reality, there's four main responses that people have. The first response 
is picking and choosing which laws we think are important. We say, I don't agree with all of God's laws. I mean, there's some good wisdom in there, but I don't believe that all of it applies to me. The second response is that we try to defend and justify ourselves. We say, I've done a pretty good job at following most of these laws. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely not bad enough for God to reject me because of my actions. I'm a pretty good person. The third response is taking a victim mentality and blaming our sins on other people who have hurt us instead of taking responsibility for them. We say, we've been hurt far more than we've hurt others, so God should accept us in our sins simply because of how tough life has been for us. The fourth response is that we are silent. We acknowledge the depth of our personal brokenness and sinfulness. We fall before God and ask for his forgiveness for all the ways we've acted disobediently. So where do you find yourself today? Which of these four responses do you most resonate with when you realize that you're living in ways that go against God's design for life and cause damage in the world around you? If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and don't find yourself resonating with the fourth response, a silent repentance before God, then I encourage you, take some time. Think about why that is. Maybe you've drifted from your relationship with God and allowed your heart to grow hard towards the conviction of God's Holy Spirit in you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, allow me to share with you why it's such a big deal that we're talking about all these laws of God today. As I mentioned earlier, the laws of God aren't concerned with how perfectly you may or may not be living. The purpose of following Jesus isn't to become a perfect rule follower. If your experience of Christians and Christianity has made you feel like that's what we're all about, then I want to say I am sorry that you were given that impression because that's not what we are all about. Being a Christian or a follower of Jesus is about accepting that we are imperfect and we will never be perfect until the day we die. And because of that realization, we see our profound need for God's forgiveness for all the ways that we've gone against him and his design for how we're meant to live as humans. You don't need to be a Christian to agree that the world is messed up. And we all do things that negatively impact the world in both small and big ways. And even though we all do so much to hurt others and the world around us, God loves us exactly where we're at. And he wants to forgive you. He wants to invite you to be with him for all eternity. The only way that could happen, though, is because of Jesus. Jesus, being God, gave his own life so that we could be reunited with God. His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead ultimately destroyed the power of sin over our lives and defeated death so that we can be free from these oppressive powers if we choose the liberating work that Jesus has done for us. So if hearing that, you want to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to be restored in relationship with the one true God, please reach out to a Christian in your life. And if you don't know any and you just stumbled upon this message, feel free to reach out to me. I would love to talk with you, to hear your story, and to share with you more about how following Jesus is the best way to live. Nothing compares to it. So in closing, 
we see how the ongoing conversation about privilege is still very relevant and important. But we also see with this new perspective on privilege, which in reality, it's an ancient perspective, although new to many of us, it gives us tremendous hope that even though our personal privileges in this life may never be good, You may always be underprivileged in society, and that is not okay, but our social privilege ultimately does not matter when it comes to our standing before God. And God's law is the great equalizer as it strips us all of our social privilege by revealing that we are all separated from relationship with God, the most important thing in our lives. And the loving forgiveness of Jesus reminds us that God wants everyone to be restored in relationship with him. All means all. No matter who we are or what we've done, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No person more valuable than another. And we can all cling dearly to that hope as we face the ongoing injustices and corrupted systems of this present world. The passage today is clear that all human beings are profoundly broken and messed up by the power of sin in our lives. And we all equally and desperately need Jesus as the only one who can restore us in relationship with God. So as people transformed by the goodness and love of God, let's continue to work together, changing our neighborhoods, societies, and culture at large as we act upon God's love and truth in our lives and see people set free from oppressive powers like social privilege in this world. And let's invite them to see a new perspective on privilege at the level ground of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that your word, even though it was written thousands of years ago, still speaks so clearly and powerfully into our situation today. And God, I want to pray for everyone who has felt the weight and the pain of rejection as they haven't been born into social privilege, God. They've been born underprivileged in society. God, I pray that we would see the church stand up, God, filled with your spirit, empowered by you to make meaningful change in the world around us. Lord, that we would work together to see the corruption of this world addressed and and challenged with the truth of your good news, the truth of your love, O God. And that, Lord Jesus, for all who are feeling discouraged by this whole aspect of of privilege in our society, being underprivileged, that God, they would see the hope that yes, in this life, it will hurt, it will sting. But when when it concerns our relationship with you, God, no one has any advantage. No one has any special privilege. And knowing you is the most important thing in this life because that's eternal life to know you, God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for those who have not received your eternal life yet, who have not received your loving relationship yet, that they could come to see you today, Lord. That they could come to encounter you, God, and be forever changed and become a member of your church. So God, we thank you for your activity and your presence in our lives. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The practice of the Lord's Supper is one of the most beautiful and powerful practices that the church has, which stands against social privilege and promotes equality. 
When we gather around the table and share the elements, we are reminded that all of God's children are equally loved and valued. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, they are welcome to fully partake in the Lord's Supper. No one is excluded. I want to start by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. And here, the Apostle Paul begins to address the Corinthian church's misuse of the Lord's Supper. And this is what he writes. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Because when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Here we see a clear case of social privilege being played out in the Corinthian church. The wealthy people in the church are excluding those who have less by hosting their own private fancy meals right in front of the underprivileged in their community, and they're not inviting them to join. Paul is rightly outraged by this, as such blatant acceptance of social privilege in the church is nothing but evil. We can never tolerate the Lord's Supper being a practice that divides the church. It's meant to be a time that brings radical unity to the church as all people are called to equally share in the meal that reminds us of the amazing love our God has extended to all of us. So Paul goes on in verse 23 to lead us through the Lord's Supper. This is what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we take the bread, we are reminded that Jesus gave up his body, allowing himself to be abused and mistreated so that we may be given eternal life, so that our bodies will be resurrected and perfected just like Jesus. Jesus knows what it means to suffer tremendously and did it all out of love for us. So let's take the bread together as we remember Jesus' body. Paul goes on to write, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. As we take the cup, we are reminded that Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice on our behalf. He allowed his blood to be poured out, the only one who could truly forgive us for all our sins. The shedding of his blood resulted in the new covenant between God and humanity. 
We know that there's no way we can be forgiven by perfectly following God's laws, only by accepting the new covenant Jesus made by perfectly following God's laws for us and giving up his life. Let's take the cup together. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your amazing love that's just so clear by what you did for us. That you are a God who loves us so deeply that you gave your only son, Jesus. And Jesus, you gave up your life the breaking of your body, the pouring out of your blood so that we can be reunited with God. And Lord, I thank you how being at the Lord's Supper together, it just puts us all on the same level. It, it goes against any social privilege that we might carry into the table. It's gone as we are all equal recipients of the love and grace of God and equally desperately in need of it. And so I thank you, God, for this new family, this new kingdom that you've called us into. And as we go from here, Lord, would we be reminded of your amazing love that you showed for us and that we would likewise be willing to lay down our lives for others as we show them the love that we've received from you. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.